0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. And we are going to look deep, deep, deep into the heart of the meatpacking industry with my buddy Mike Calicrate, who's been on the show a number of times over the past 12 years that I've been doing this, folks. 12 years coming up in March. Just want you to know that. Um, Mike Calicrate, in case you haven't heard uh, his one of his broadcasts before, he is the founder of Ranch Foods Direct. Um, and he is also an independent cattle producer, a business entrepreneur, and most importantly, perhaps a political activists. He serves as an outspoken leader in addressing the rural, social, and cultural impacts of current economic trends. Think consolidation in the meat industry. He was a founding member of several farm advocacy groups, including the Organization for Competitive Markets, who have a very nifty newsletter I highly recommend, Uh, rcaf that's R-C-A-L-F USA, which is another advocacy organization, and the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. He also was a lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against the world's largest meat packer at that time, IBP, now part of Tyson Foods, alleging unfair and discriminatory marketing practices. And that goes way back in the time machine to what, what was that? 1998, Mike? 1996. 96, 96. So you have been fighting the good fight now for almost 30 years, which, you know, the fact that you're still alive, kicking and still give a shit. <laughs> 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 My <laughs> is a goodness. testimony to what a cussed dude you is. I mean, well, really. Well, it's a
3: good thing nobody told me it was going to take 30 years.
2: Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah I'd that would have been, that, that been I'd, a a, I'd
3: have bought a hot dog stand uh, yes. have been it. exactly
2: <laughs> yeah you wouldn't have been doing this now so you recently you sent this to me and I, I i really loved it and i and it also made me read a preceding uh publication on your blog i guess that's what you call your blog right Yeah, that your your noble the noble newsletter basically.
3: It's where I get it out of my head and 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 onto paper.
2: You're really excellent at doing that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there was one that you sent me in particular, which was basically a prescription for fixing the meat industry, which finally. People are, you know, the news media is recognizing that this is a monopoly that has a stranglehold on, you know, the basically all of the agricultural sector—not just meat, uh, you know, beef, poultry, and pork, but but dairy and seeds and equipment, and everything. But for our purposes, we're going to talk about the meat industry. So, give us the basis. What's the breakdown here? How do you fix this industry? What's your prescription? Dr. Calicrate.
3: <laughs> well, what kind of inspired me to write that piece over the weekend? I published it yesterday morning. It's on yeah. my blog at MikeCalicrate.com and it's the top post. But it it basically says, okay, uh, here's how we fix it. You know, when the markets are gone and the game of monopoly is over. And, right. and that is exactly where we are today. The game of monopoly is over. You know, four big companies have all the have all the money, have all the power. They're they're collecting the rents. They're extracting the wealth, and and we if we're going to have a you know an open and free society uh, and get back to a any kind of a reasonable level of of, of competitive capitalism, we got to break up this dang monopoly. And, yeah. and so what what I did was was I just sort of went step by step, and and I, I think back to the nineteen twenty one period. The last time we broke up the big market power of the right at that time, five big meat packers controlled about fifty percent of the market. Today, four meat packers control eighty-five percent of the market. So far worse today than it was then. But mm-hmm. back then, they decided that they were going to regulate these guys. They were going to have to sell off everything except slaughter. So they were vertically integrated. I mean, they could go from the from the auction. Uh, stockyards all the way through to the retail. I mean, they own the transportation, they own the refrigeration, they own the slaughter. And they were really pillaging and plundering America's livestock producers, but also taking a lot of advantage of consumers. And so it didn't matter who you represented, whether you were caring about like a farm state legislature that would care about ranchers or farmers. We also had the consumers being highly affected. Now, where, when, what does that remind you of?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that
3: is that is today. That is today. Yeah. And, I mean, and JBS just
2: worse. JBS just settled what fifty two billion dollars or something like yeah, that. Yeah, fifty two million. Uh, fifty two million they, which to the drop in, in their bucket, but
3: still, that is nothing. That yeah. is nothing, in, in, and yeah. in, 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 of course, that's one of the big problems we per, have. That was
2: for price fixing,
3: right? And, and we're settling these cases instead of prosecuting them, but, right? Uh, you know, we can talk about that, but here's the steps. First of all, let's regulate these big meat packers. Let's say, yeah. look, folks, you're not going to buy and sell cattle and trade for all the money you can get out of the transaction. You know, I understand the big retailers have been pushing you around for a long time. And when COVID came, you got some power over the retailers, which you most certainly exerted with higher box beef prices and lower livestock prices to producers. So, So Mr. Big Four Packers... You will be limited now. Reg, you will regulate you and limit you to only the drop credit value. So it's going to be in their best interest to get all they can for hides, all they can for tongues, tails, you know, hearts, livers, Uh uh, intestines, everything they can possibly get out of that cow. They can live on that drop credit. In fact, they can have a very nice return on their equity and their investment, and to shareholders and executives by only earning what they can on the drop credit so and that's so what you mean by that then, that's
2: all of the that's that, just the the the, the byproducts basically yeah
3: this is the stuff that doesn't go in a box and gets shipped out to the big retailers right. and food service companies and and if you go back to you know 1970 uh and if, if you read the article on the blog there all the all of the links are in there so you can mm-hmm. fully understand what i'm talking about but it used to be that the that in say even 22 years ago when I started killing cattle and selling meat instead of selling fat cattle, I actually got paid for the cattle that I delivered to GNC Packing Company in Colorado Springs. And so I would drop off a load of 40 finished cattle to to GNC Mm in Colorado Springs and they would write me a check. So I got back my carcasses plus I got a check because the, the drop credit values, the hide head, you know, tongue tail, yeah. all of that stuff was worth more than the kill fee at GNC Packing
2: Company. Wow, amazing! And, and so the
3: the history in the meat packing industry is they make money if they if all they get is the drop credit, they make good money. Yeah. But Now what they're doing is they're trading the beef. They're controlling that whole supply chain to where they're they're marking up the meat and and you know so so we continue to lose and more and more at the farm and ranch gate. So make them live on the drop credit. Period. They have no choice. That's it. We're gonna. We know what you're paying for the cattle. We yeah. know what the drop credit is, and we know what you're selling the beef for to the to through distribution. Okay. Right. Now let's go back, and I love 1970. I want to. I want to use 1970 as that base okay. that we can get back to to put us back where we should be with competition mm-hmm. and with the producer receiving his fair share of the consumer. Beef dollar. Right. So in 1970, if you you look at the numbers, the producer got 65% of the consumer beef dollar. And this is exactly the same calculation and the same state of of process as we have today with box beef. And so it's 65% got back to the farm and ranch gate. Today it's closer to 35%. So we've lost around we've lost around 30% of our share of the consumer dollar and this really does explain why rural america has become this seriously impoverished place yes. and on the, on the metrics rural america is lower on the metrics than the than the poorest of the urban centers around the country as far as poverty and hunger and those yep. metrics are yep. concerned so this is this is why uh, we have why we have declined so much economically and socially in rural America is because the monopoly has stolen our share of the consumer food dollar. And in particular, what we want to talk about is the beef dollar. And so yeah. USDA publishes the USDA meat price spreads every month. And so I look at those and, and they're pretty good. I mean, they're showing around 34 or 5% going back to the producer now. And that and remember in 1970 that was 65%. So let's mandate, let's and I hate this. I I hate that we have to regulate to this level, but you're dealing with a monopoly. You're not dealing with a competitive market that can respond. That's
2: right. That's right. And so let's
3: force them to make sure based upon what the consumer is paying. And I would argue today the consumer is paying too much. So that Mm -hmm. can get adjusted and that can happen through more of a competitive marketplace. What is the consumer paying for beef? And we are going to mandate that 65% of that get back to the farm and ranch gate or whoever finished those cattle. So it might mm-hmm. be a, a, a Nebraska ranch sends their calves to a feedlot. The feedlot feeds them. So it, it's 65% of that finished animal. And then we're going to have to depend upon the feedlots and the, and the people who grow those animals to finish weight than to compete for the calf. And, and that's a lot easier to do than to make four meat packers compete for finished cattle.
2: Right and, right, and
3: so that has to happen. They get 65% of the, of the consumer uh, dollar. But all the mm-hmm. while what we're doing here is we're building that alternative pathway to the consumer in, in parallel and alongside of the existing mess that we've got with big meat packers and mm-hmm. big distributors and big retailers and all of that. In other words, it's going to be more of the direct sale, local regional food system development that would allow smaller meat packers to to start in business, or the existing ones to have a way better chance of of being successful. and well, selling able to more directly to consumers.
2: Absolutely, I mean they cannot compete now. Not oh, not no possible. Way. It's a not fool's possible. game to
3: get in the meat business right now. Right, it's a total it, fools it really game. is.
2: Well, that, we'll talk that. about that in a minute because you address that in the the letter that you wrote to President Biden. But I want to keep going on this particular uh, prescription of yours because you made uh, several points about um, – investment in smaller local plants, which we just talked about, but education in animal agriculture and also meat cutting, which has gone away. I mean, I worked as a butcher myself for five years in New York City, so I actually kind of know what we're talking about here. And, you know, it's not what they're doing down in those processing plants. I mean, they're, you know, cutting everything into their steaks and shops, but you don't have that opportunity like when i first started working in the industry um in 1984 maybe box beef we had just started coming in but we were getting really big primal cuts even so um because we had skilled meat cutters and there nothing went to waste everything right. i was working with french guys too so i mean yeah you know they're cutting the meat so that everybody is going to take home a tasty cut no matter what you want to call it anyway but my point is is that you you know, you're making a point that that education is also a part of this prescription, and I, I wanted you to expand a little bit on that.
3: And what I asked, uh, what I suggested last week on a call with USDA folks was, let's have USDA partner with the Department of Labor. They both uh-huh. have tools of money that are dedicated towards training programs, so right. we can build better skill levels in people, and and with that, better incomes. Uh, let's move a lot more people back to the middle class and let's get labors uh, compensated. Let's get them compensated to where they can, they can live a good life as well. Well, right, Used Mike, to be,
2: you made 35, 40 bucks an hour as a butcher back yeah, in the day. A well, I remember again, again,
3: 1970, you know, I graduated from high school in 69, but I worked in the meat market and at thrifty food market in Evergreen, Colorado. And, and, and there's something that happened on April twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy, that changed the world in the in the slaughter and meatpacking business.
2: All right. And that
3: is when IBP's president and top executives met with Mo Steinman, the mafia representative in New York. Uh, Come on. New York City. Really? 1970. And if you read the article and click on the nineteen seventy at the very end, I just added the link. Uh, and, oh, cool. and it would I will take you to the article that talks about how IBP made a deal with the mafia to get box beef in New York City. Well, nobody wanted it. I mean, the butchers certainly didn't want it. They mm-hmm. liked cutting carcasses.
2: And that was the end and, of the meatpacking district in New York.
3: Yeah. And, right? and they had, had to bribe, a whole the yep. they bribe the big retailers. They bribed the big retailers. And they bribed the union officials to get this job done, to get the boxed beef in. Well, that's what saved IBP. Uh, the New York market owed IBP a bunch of money, wouldn't pay him. Uh-huh. so Courier-Holman <laughs> went back there and made the deal with most diamond and the mafia. And they, and they used the 50 cents a hundred weight on boxed beef to bribe the, the grocery store uh, executives and uni- union officials to absolutely force boxed beef into the market. Wow. And of course, it's got all kinds of negatives. I mean, for a big one is food safety. If you can mm-hmm. age a carcass six to seven days, uh, you you as, that is the best pathogen intervention there is. All now right. you compare that to box beef that goes into the box within 24 to 36 hours That's after right. slaughter, you're packaging the pathogens. And yes. this is where the jack-in-the-box and all of those things came from. But sure. nobody wanted to talk about what was really causing the problem. So I'm talking about going back to our rural communities, or, and, we're, and the administration is talking a lot about local regional food system development.
0: Mm-hmm. So they let's are. put in
3: small slaughter plants kill those animals near where they're raised. At Calcrate Cattle Company, they don't even even get on a truck. They're raised there, they die there, and the carcasses get shipped into the urban center where it's cut up. So that's the model Uh I want to see more of. And and then I think uh, what we do, uh, Katie, is is we look for a 7% goal that no meat packer can control more than 7% of the national market. And right. so now we're going to give them two years to scale down and to get smaller. Mm-hmm. And, and they can sell off plants. They don't need that many plants. They can yeah, have right. one plant. And, right. and so let's start getting this thing back to where it works for people. Think of the national security implications uh, that we have when we can't feed ourselves or the food we do produce is sold to us by a handful of multinational corporations that aren't even from here. I'm talking about JBS, Marford, sure. and Smithfield. That, with those, that's Brazil and China. So this yeah. is critical. This is this is national security stuff that we're talking
2: mm-hmm. about. I would agree now, with why, that.
3: Why are we talking 7%? That's kind of a weird number. Well, <laughs> if you take four firm concentration, we've always talked about when it reaches 40%, you no longer have a competitive market. Now, this is old sociology and economist stuff. When a market becomes concentrated at the point of 40%, you've already lost the market. Now it's easier, it's much easier for them to, com- to cooperate than to compete. And so I'm saying, yes. let's limit, let's limit for firm concentration to 28%. That's, <laughs> that's below the 40% danger threshold. Right. Well, let's just say it was if we went 8 percent. Well, then you'd be at 32 percent. So that's getting awful close to 40. Let's just say 7 percent. And we can set that in stone. And that could be a guideline for the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department on any merger approvals that might happen in the future. But right now, we've got to go backwards to restore a competitive market, which we do not have. Not even right. anything even that resembles it.
2: Right, and what about like you know? There's always, uh, you know, uh, people occasionally see in mainstream media, but I see it a lot because I read the trades. But, but the whole sort of enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act, which stalled out under Obama, I mean, is how 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 much uh, impetus does that have uh, under Vilsack uh, in his second round as Secretary of Agriculture?
3: Well, depending on when you hear Vilsack talk, he, he he's got a <laughs> great script. I mean, I love it. I, I mean, I'm, I, I catch myself cheering when I hear him. And then again, I, he kind of gets on a different script and I, and I get sad again. But, yeah. <laughs> but but the deal is that, that the antitrust laws have never really been enforced in the meatpacking industry no. since 1921. And so, uh, we, you know, we've got private right of action, which we took in 1996 against IBP, which then became Tyson. And then the, the, the judges decided, oh, well, you have to prove harm to competition. You know, right. you got to prove that their their bad act, or or their preference, or or whatever violation to the act you know, of the plain language of the act, would had you got to now prove harm to competition? In other words, the entire national market.
2: Yeah, and, to and every that, single person who's it, raising a cow, you have to show yeah, that they it, have been personally impacted by right. you know this lack of enforcement. Of course, that is an impossible uh, task. You can't
3: do and it so and, and so the way i compare that is is a woman's purse is stolen by by some guy he's mm-hmm. running down the street and and so you're you're you're, you're angry about that purse being stolen and, and so you file a complaint at the police station and the police station says ma'am i'm really sorry about your purse but unless you can prove that every woman in that has a purse in America was also harmed, you don't get to file your case. And, that is, and that's, that's the where a cattleman sets. I mean, so yeah. I've got a feedlot in, in 1998. It's December. I, the big four packers after I've filed the suit in 96 have now gotten together and said, okay, Calicrate is not going to be a cattle feeder anymore because we're, we're not going to buy his cattle. Yeah. So they all get together and they decide, okay, no more. We're not buying Calicrates cattle. Well, I only had one buyer. It was National Beef, which is now Marfrey. Right. And finally, the buyer told me, he says, you know, after I have complained, I said, you know, you know, Don, I'm watching your National Beef trucks fly up and down the highway just east of me here a mile. Right. And you're not buying my cattle that are 200 miles closer to your plant. What is going mm-hmm. on? And, and of course, I had 14,000 head and a 12,000 head feedlot because I oh couldn't my gosh. sell gosh. And so Don finally said, he said, okay, Mike, I got it. I'm sorry. You know, I'm drinking your coffee every week. I'm not buying your cattle. I've been told I can't. Wow. And so his head buyer said he couldn't buy my cattle. It would have been nice if if they had told me that earlier. Yeah, right. I give give the secretary of agriculture, Dan Glickman, a call who I know. He's from Kansas. And I said, "Uh, Dan, why don't you enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act? And he said, well, you know, Mike. In this modern day of globalization, we need big meat packers that can do business globally. So that is the Kool-Aid that they have been drinking Mm -hmm. since 1921, basically, Mm -hmm. and really been drinking it heavily since Earl Butts was Secretary of Agriculture under Nixon. Yes. And and so Obama finally comes along and realizes, "Uh uh-oh, we've really made a mistake here. Let's have some hearings. Let's start enforcing these antitrust laws. Let's right. enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act. Bill Sack was secretary. They did all those hearings around the country. Yeah. Massive numbers of people showed up, and then they did nothing. But this is important. Lena Kahn wrote the article, Obama's Game of Chicken. In other words, why was he afraid to enforce the antitrust law, particularly the Packers and Stockyards Act? Yes. Well, look who runs Washington. The lobbyists, the big food lobbyists, Farm Bureau, right. National Cattlemen's Beef Association—you know all of your big commodity sure. organizations—fought them. I mean, they they turn loose, uh, you know, the troops on Washington. Yes. So, but but where is Lena Kahn now? She was with Barry Lynn and his group, the Competitive Markets Group. Where is she now? She I don't is know. the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. <laughs> and who broke up the Packers in 1921? The Federal Trade Commission. I, I This is an opportunity like we've never had in 100 years. I'm so thankful that Lena Kahn is where she is.
2: That's fantastic. And, and so
3: some good things could happen. You know, right, this right. idea that we settle cases with criminals has got to stop. But the bottom line is the Justice Department, the Packers and Stockyards, <clears throat> don't have lawyers and legal staff that can compare with private law firms that represent the big monopolists.
2: Oh, definitely so not. So my suggestion
3: to USDA is partner with private law firms. I mean, just imagine if you could have David Domina from Omaha, Nebraska, on a team of lawyers, leading a team of lawyers against the big meat packers attorneys. He would, he'll would. he make mincemeat out of them. He'll grind them up and spit them out. That's who you <laughs> got to have on your side. Yeah, but yeah. the problem is, is when David Domino took our case to the Alabama court, the judge decided that we had to prove harm to competition. And the judge decided that we had, that they, that the Packer had an excuse called rule of reason. In other words, they have to do it to compete with the other monopolists in the market. Uh, and it's just like in 1970, when IBP bribed the New York meat trade to get boxed beef in, that went to court too, mm-hmm. and they got felony counts. But Whoa. the judge ruled that Courier Holman didn't have any other option. In other words, the rule of reason was he had to cheat to stay in business and compete. And so, okay, Courier, you can pay seven thousand dollars in fines, and you're and we're, you're not going to have to go to jail.
2: Right, And right. that is
3: still true today. The government agencies are settling cases and allowing these, these predators, these criminals, to continue to pillage and plunder producers on one side and
2: consumers on the other. That's exactly right. Listen, we have to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Mike Calicray. Please stay tuned.
1: The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted.
0: I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan.
1: I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From Land Stewardship.
0: We are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day.
1: The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain.
0: By the time I go shopping every single day, There's no meat left to feed my family.
1: The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen.
2: Okay, so Mike, let's talk more about the points you made in uh, a letter you wrote addressed to the president um, that was you published in I think January on your blog, um, and you made some, you made this really incredible point. Without fair market access and the following reforms, which I'll read, um, pouring resources into new and existing food processing and distribution infrastructure is a waste of time and money. What do you mean by that? That is a very bold statement. I mean, I I mean I know what you mean by yeah. That. But yeah, you know like
3: a, I'm ready yeah we'll but, talk about that. you know
2: like putting <laughs> there is a lot of talk about putting money into new uh food processing and distribution blah 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 you know more uh small pack packing plants and whatnot um but they cannot compete as you said earlier um I want you to like deconstruct why that stuff is not going to work even though it sounds great on paper and everybody is like rubbing their legs together like crickets thinking hey the glory train has finally moved in but no because there isn't fair market access so talk a little bit more about what that you know what those points are and you know where where it where it has to start like where is our first reform is that the the using antitrust laws Breaking up the monopolies that you described, um, you know, wh- where do we begin? Because this is huge. It's a yep. huge task.
3: Yep, we can cover it. <laughs> I got it.
2: So, so what would what does fair market access actually mean?
3: Well, it means access to the access to a market that that is competitive and, and a market that you you know where you're at. I mean, there's a good opportunity for you to recover your costs of production if you're an efficient operator. If you do a good job of managing you're going to be able to make money in a marketplace
2: because why you're not allowed to write. I want you to explain why you're not having that experience now as a, you know, as as a producer, what happens? You take your cattle to the, to the, to the slaughter plant, as you were describing when you, with your, you know, when you brought your suit against IBP and, or whatever it was. Um, and, and, and they say, okay, we're going to pay you this. And they just pick that number out of the, whatever, you know, orifice they choose to hide it in. Um, and you're, and you're saying, but wait a minute, wait a minute, like six months ago, I got this, why, why am I not? So that's what I want you to describe that because that is really
3: outrageous. I met John Tyson at the NCBA convention in San Antonio, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association meeting. I think that was the last meeting I ever went to, it was in <laughs> 2001. And, and I, uh, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but, but I, I caught him coming out of the men's room uh, <laughs> on, on the trade show floor. Okay. And I knew that John Tyson was there to announce that IBP was going to buy, or or Tyson was going to buy going IBP. To buy IBP. Mm-hmm. And so I I stopped him and I introduced myself and I said, I'm Mike Calicrate and I'm one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against IBP. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me with sort of a shocked look and he says, what lawsuit?
0: I mean, well, he already, yeah.
3: he's, he was get, fixing to buy the company. I said, well, it's a lawsuit based on the Packers and Stockyards Act that could cost IBP more than their entire market capitalization if we win. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, "I know all about the Packers and Stockyards Act." And I said, "Yes, I know you probably do and you probably also know that you wouldn't be where you are today in the chicken business had that law been enforced." Right. And and we got to, you know, buttonheads a little bit. But finally he <laughs> backed kidding. down a bit and he said, "Let me tell you something. If you're suing IBP, you're suing the wrong people. You need to be suing Walmart. They dictate price to us and we have no choice but to pay you less. Uh huh. He just admitted he had the market power to pay me less. And I said, and that is our case. You right. should not have the market power to pay us less. So the course of, re- of least resistance is to pay the rancher less because the feedlot right. is just a middleman. They don't care what calves cost. They right. they don't care what cattle are bringing as finished to the packer. They only care about making that margin, and right. so they they honestly don't have a you know a whole lot to to gain or lose. But the course of least resistance then becomes buying the calf cheaper, and this is how you lose thirty some percent of your share of the consumer dollar. It's because of the market power of the biggest retailers, the biggest food service companies, dictating to the biggest meat packers, and then it works on down. For lower prices to the producer, and right. so in order to fix this, you've got to break up that monopoly, abusive market power, and and that is done with antitrust, and it's most certainly not done with settling these price fixing lawsuits.
2: I know it's these amazing. guys have
3: to pay big time. There needs to be people in jail. They they yeah. got us chained. They we need injunctive relief. And so what I told John Tyson was right. I mean, mm-hmm. we ended up winning the case in Montgomery, Alabama against Tyson. Mm-hmm. Irregardless of what the judge did on his jury instructions, the jury saw through it all and you and voted unanimously on every single point for the cattle producers. Mm-hmm. And we won the case and got $1.28 billion judgment. And then some of the jury, members of the jury, <clears throat> came to us and said, Wow, you know, you guys, you guys needed a lot more money but we didn't have the mathematical calculation to give you more. Wow. So then, but then what happened was the judge reversed the jury verdict, took it away from us, so we lost the $1.28 billion, and he charged us for Tyson's court costs of nearly $80,000. Wow. And then it went on to the appeals court where they, where they held up the rule of reason and they held up the harm to competition Mm -hmm. and they agreed with the judge reversing the case. Then we took it all the way to the Supreme court to justice Roberts, who had just represented USDA, uh, In the in the checkoff case in front of the Supreme Court, so you know the side he was on.
2: Well, he has he has always been on the side of big money. I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse, who is my Rhode Island senator, has been doing a series for months now, uh, since Biden was inaugurated, on dark money in politics and the Roberts Court. Um, and it's very—he's very specific in calling out all of these pro-corporate decisions that Roberts has been ladling out, it really, in his entire career on the bench, and one of the reasons why he was made Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But i, I want to move on for a second here, Mike, because another—but let me that you just made- say, the Supreme
3: Court refused to hear the case in favor of hearing the Anna Nicole Smith family feud case. And oh so God. here <laughs> we are—the most important case in the cattle business, and I think agriculture in hundred years was thrown to the side, but what it did is it gave the green light to the monopoly to continue to extract wealth, and have they ever
2: that that is that is so true and thank you for for wrapping that up cuz you know my brain is so um you know fluffy i i i just you know had my piece to say and then i wanted uh, uh. <laughs> 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 i i apologize when i jabber on the way i do but there's another thing that you brought up um in your letter to the president in january and that was truth in labeling stopping food fraud, stop food fraud ban false misleading and deceptive labeling what are the implications of labeling to the consumer and to producers? I want people to understand what that's about because we're talking about cool here, right? Co- Country yeah, of well, origin labeling, about right?
3: Something like cool. I mean, it's mm-hmm. this is this is something we don't need Congress to help us with. This is something USDA could do tomorrow mm-hmm. is stop imported meat from being able to carry the product to the USA label, right? And so they they bring stuff in from. Uh, JBS, the Batista brothers, uh, they get to repackage it. It gets the product of the USA label. Well, it's like the hothouse tomatoes out of out of Canada coming into Colorado during the winter. And they get the Colorado Proud label. So that's the kind of deceptive labeling we're talking about that has to get fixed. And that's an easy one. USDA could do that by, you know, later today if they wanted to, but they haven't uh-huh, uh-huh, and, they, uh-huh. and, they, and they, really, they really, really should. But overall labeling has become extremely deceptive and misleading and downright to be fraudulent, which I would yes. categorize the, the product of USA labeling as fraudulent, which would be the worst. But I got to tell you about a phone call I had from Roy Moore. It's been a couple of years ago and he, he's 85 years old. He's retired on the ranch in Wyoming he, their family used to own Maverick Meat Company in Denver. And uh-huh. they were one of those sort of branded products that, you know, they they were killing cattle and cutting it up and selling meat. A, right. And along at, at that same time, there was Coleman. Yeah, I was, was going to say, Swatch, it reminds Colorado. me of Coleman
2: Meat. Yeah, right, exactly. Right.
3: <laughs> and then there was Bill Nyman who had his yep. brand. Laura's Lean had her brand. And what Roy Moore wanted to tell me, he said, Mike, you're the only one that's left out of all those brands. And this is part of the labeling problem. So these these brands that that were good brands that that you know were out there in the market providing consumers with choice are now owned by someone else, a multinational corporation. Maybe it's General Mills like that bought Epic or, or maybe it's Purdue that bought Nyman and bought yep. Coleman or, or Ari Meyer that bought Laura's lean. And I call these zombie brands. These are brands that the consumer sees thinking it's a separate company and that there's a, a set of protocols that are more favorable to what the consumer wants. None of that is true. And we need the Federal Trade Commission to step in and stop this deceptive and misleading labeling, downright right. fraudulent labeling. And that, that's an easy one. Uh, we, could get, we, could, we need to do that. And so that's one of the key points. And, and, and of course, the next one that, that I had on that list to President Biden was, We've got to stop subsidizing industrial agriculture. Yeah, The subsidizing that we do for corn and soy and a bunch of these things really benefits the big corporations that want cheap feed for their hogs and their, and their cattle and, yeah. and their chickens and poultry you know, operations. Right. We need to stop subsidizing that. And really what it's doing is it's, it's causing loss of farmland, loss of topsoil. Oh yeah. Uh, pollution pollution of rivers and streams. Like look at Iowa. It's the wor- it's the best example of the worst Oh practices. my
2: God, totally ruined. Yeah. The state and, is and, like you toxic. Know, why aren't we
3: growing dry land barley instead of sucking the old Galala aquifer dry, growing corn to export into Mexico below cost of production? Yeah. We're, right. We are we are squandering precious fossil water to grow stuff we don't even need. Yeah. And and so let's let's go back to some dry land. Let's start pulling water. Uh, no, no f- more than what the recharge rate is, which means you get to shut down a whole bunch of center pivots in western Kansas. Mm-hmm. We've got it. We've got to protect that water resource because it's actually the people's. It's not a handful of corporations' property.
2: Right, but they are sure as hell making the money off of it. Yeah, no, it's. Oh, I mean, yeah. the water, the water problems that we are facing in the coming decades are really terrifying. Um, yeah. And completely, uh, you know, just under the radar. Nobody is paying attention to this stuff. Uh, we sell off agricultural land to foreign investors. We don't know who the hell they are. You know, they go through this weird little secretive organization in the government that's supposed to be vetting this stuff. But I mean, they what is it, CIUSA or something like that? That it's the organization that, for example, gave the green light to the Smithfield purchase. You know, insane, right, right. insane. Who's yeah. who's in charge? I mean, that was crazy. That was I yeah. was under the Obama administration,
3: but I want to go the lead... revolving door. You know, the, the, yeah. those who so we regulate are now doing the regulating.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and another thing that you brought up was investing in and developing local marketplaces, and you had a very sweet photograph of um, you know what I didn't know where that marketplace was, but it reminded me of something you would see in almost any European city, and that well, is that it's a big. Where was, that was it?
3: Queen, that was the Queen Victoria Market in ah, Melbourne, Australia. There you and, go. And so I was there, and I, I right? took that picture. Uh, but what was really cool about that market in the meat uh, uh, area, uh, the meat hall they called it, massive, yes. huge, the biggest public market I've ever seen in my life. But in the meat hall, there were carcass rails running down both sides of the of the aisles. Sure. And so years ago, when they were in the carcass trade. The, those rails were transporting meat to the meat shops all along. There, there was a bunch of meat, different meat shops, shops in the in the meat hall, yeah. and so they they bring in the carcasses early in the morning when it was cool, and they roll those things down to the meat shops where then they put the carcass in their cooler, just like the market I worked in in Evergreen, Colorado, in in, right. in the late sixties, <laughs> right. where we cut carcasses instead of boxes. Well, you know what happened? Australia now Conagra uh, now JBS. Connecticut became JBS, they, they've taken over the Australian market along with Cargill, and it's all to a great
2: degree. Now. Yes. So, what that I want to be
3: able to do is bring back the carcass trade, yeah. which is going to be far more efficient, far better, safer, higher quality, and open up these small meat markets that are owner operated mm-hmm. with good, highly skilled cutters making good livings. And yeah. I want to cut it from the carcass all the way to the consumer and sell it in a fresh counter. And and just bring it all back. I, I remember yeah. in Evergreen, Colorado, working in that meat market on a Saturday morning. You could never ever be sick or call in uh, and not show <laughs> up because yeah. you had to get there early. And we stacked that meat counter. We stacked it high from end to end. And I just remember the consumers, the, the customers would come in and they'd be eight deep and eight wide, and we would roll. Sure.
2: Yeah, well that doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And we I saw to bring that. Bring it back. Yeah. But, I would agree. But, I've seen that but, in many other countries. It's, but Katie, you know. what,
3: what we got to do in addition is it can't just be the meat market. I want to go into this place and I want to see the carcasses hanging, everything transparent behind glass. I want to see the cutters cutting. I want to <laughs> be able to buy fresh cuts, but I also want to buy my bread from the baker that's in the same place. Right, his, his whole baking operation is there. I want to be able to buy my cheese from the cheese maker and, and from the creamery, I, I want to be able to buy my coffee from the coffee roaster. And, yeah. and, the, and, and, the, and the folks that are the, in the brewery, I want to be able to have a beer
1: and, and a hamburger
3: <laughs> and a carnita tacos. And, yeah. and I just want it to be the public market that every urban center deserves to have. But you're going to get major, major pushback from the developer community they hate those kind of public gathering places because the, cheap, the rents are cheap. They have, they, they, they have to be and should yeah. be because you're providing a public service, but you're providing all the processing beyond slaughter. So let the, let the small communities slaughter the animals close to where they are. We'll ship the carcasses into these, these wonderful community marketplaces and, and, and distribute our meat directly to consumers putting a lot more money back to the farm and ranch gate than even the 65% that I suggested earlier right it right didn't...
2: and and as you may also made the point, it's a safer uh, chain of of you know of production. Because right, exactly. you're not you're 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 avoiding a lot of the potential for pathogens to you know in, uh, infiltrate and uh, colonize. Um, so but here's the other
3: reason that okay, that, that developers and rent collectors hate these public markets because <laughs> the rents are affordable. Yeah, and they are public gathering places where people talk with one another, not like a Walmart, not right. like a big box store where you you know you walk across the aisle to avoid someone. This is where people come and gather, and communities have an opportunity to become better places to live because these are citizens in addition to consumers. And so we vote for a city council that that represents community as opposed to Wall Street interests with chains and and franchises. Right. We get a better mayor that represents the interests of the public, and and that they fear that they, that's a huge fear for the developer uh, rent collecting. Uh, uh, economy and, and people who make their money off of it. And so what we're doing in Colorado Springs is we're going to build that place that I just described, but it's going to be owned by the occupants. And mm-hmm. so so the brewer, the distiller, the coffee roaster, the creamery, the meat market, the baker, we're all going to share in the ownership of this beautiful facility. It's going to have some really cool architecture, more in line with airflow, sunlight, you know, it's right. just a great place to be. It's going to have community space for meetings. It's going to have a huge commercial kitchen and incubation space. We'll have the food trucks showing up. It's wow. just going to be where it happens. And But we're going to do it in, on a private basis because uh-huh. you can't trust the city to support it. I mean, I worked for 10 years in Colorado Springs, in Colorado Springs to build that public market concept, and it was flatly rejected by wow. city leadership. So we're just going to build it anyway. And it's going to be privately <laughs> owned.
1: But I right, would welcome right.
3: any city in the country to support that. There is a project in Grand Junction right now more on the, on the community basis of, of consumers owning it and, and providing the opportunities for small business to come in. Because one mm-hmm. of the big risks that small businesses face is the risk of increased rents. And oh, so yeah, you've sure. all heard, everybody's heard about the New York restaurant that made the place only to have their rent doubled and put out of business.
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the one thing, I mean, I, I don't mean to throw cold water on the idea because I love this and I've spent a lot of time in Europe. I've been to many of those markets. But even some of the most traditional cities like Madrid, which used to have like six or seven of these big markets, they are starting to founder. I mean, the population... Uh, even in European countries is loving the convenience of the supermarket. And these are cultures that still cook, still have three squares a day, don't eat processed foods, but they're loving the convenience of the supermarket. And that really is tragic. Um, I, I really hope your vision prevails, Mike, because it is a, certainly a much better way to shop and eat and stay connected to the people in your community and the people who are making your food. But it's it's a tough road a
3: second. Let's think about this a second. All of the businesses that I described that are going to be in this place mm-hmm. are currently successful and established businesses on their own by themselves. Yeah. What is the synergy in bringing these businesses together under one roof? We all pick up each other's customers.
2: Yes, this for thing, sure. This
3: thing doesn't, I mean, I know I know the shift towards convenience and big box, but yeah. I think after covid people might have a better attitude. Well, you might be right about businesses.
2: that. I think you so might I, have
3: a very good the, point there. But the other thing is that when we come together as businesses within this space, we are sharing that freezer. We are sharing the big cooler. We're mm-hmm. sharing the the, uh, the dry goods storage area. That's we're, right. We're We're sharing a lot of expense that each one of us would have individually. And so now we've got a more affordable place to be and we're also serving much of the interest of the community. So uh, I'm excited about it. I, I, and, and I think it sounds what, great. I'll in come running out. The numbers, running the numbers, the rent, or it's not the mortgage payment is going to be cheaper than the rent would have been with a developer. Right. Right,
2: right, yeah, I believe that. You know, we only have a couple minutes left, um, and I want to go back to one last point about politics here, and that is that most uh, people in your community, most farmers and ranchers, tend to be conservative, re- vote a Republican ticket, and you know, in a in a large sense, they have very much participated in the demise of their whole shtick by supporting Republican uh, policies that have fostered uh, large corporate interests. So where where is the impetus in rural America to start voting for a different type of politician? Like, how do you get that? You know, is it through establishing a market like you're talking about? Like, where do you get the support for ideas like yours in a community that is typically and traditionally very republican. And I don't well, mean that Trump idea, people. I, I just mean very conservative politically, right? Yeah, the idea that I described
3: is going to be in the urban center so we still aren't going to be reaching the folks uh, mm-hmm. other than hopefully paying them a better price for their for their production. Right. Uh, but but what I've seen in rural America where I live in St. Francis, Kansas is it's traditionally Republican, it's traditionally conservative, and and I don't know what's conservative about four meat packers controlling the market. I I don't know what's conservative about uh, you know uh, <laughs> Monsanto charging you know eg- exorbitant prices for seed corn, and right. I don't know what's conservative about allowing fertilizer prices to skyrocket the way they have. But the problem I think we've got in rural America is we've become very tribal. I mean, you can hardly go into a business. You know, ten years ago, that Rush Limbaugh wasn't on the radio, That's right. blasting through the place, and and so they they've become very tribal and and they they you know they they, they sided with the Republicans, uh, and and I am I I tell you what, both parties have sold us out. You've you got oh, yeah. you to know that the anger and the support for Trump was because everybody was very mad and very angry about both parties. Uh-huh, and both sure. parties have done a great job of working for Wall Street. I mean, why do they have to yep. shove the Dow in our face every time we turn a TV on or, or radio? Get them out of here. Shove Wall Street into the ocean. We need to get <laughs> back to Main Street and, yeah. and stop investing contrary to our own self-interest. But I, was, I, I just remember when I first got into the, the IBP lawsuit and I was getting to know the lawyers, and here we've got this set of Alabama attorneys. David Dominick came along a little bit later after class certification. But later on, or early on, I was talking to the Alabama lawyers. And, of course, this was the greatest venue because it's down south where they do big jury awards. And these lawyers had, yeah. had taken some, some big uh, pharmaceutical and hospital uh, folks to task and done well uh, in some class actions. And I said, why are you guys all Democrats? And and Randy said to me, says Mike, have you ever run into a Republican that cared about the little guy? And I thought, and I'm not now. I'm I'm a Republican at the time, right? And and I'm thinking, gosh damn, Randy, I'm going to think of somebody. Hang on, just a minute, I'll (laughs) think of somebody. And you know what? I couldn't think of anybody, and 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 they they Republicans have always supported big business. Yes, and and the Democrats do too. They just say they don't. They just say they they don't. They did. They did. And so I, I just think we've got to quit. We've got to throw out the labels. We've got to stop talking about conservative and liberal and all that baloney. And I think we've got to get back to community working with each other to make it as good as we can make it, and not worry about so much about Dan Glickman's globalization but mm-hmm. sort of build our communities to where they're great places to live and people are compensated well for the wealth that they create and the work that they do right. support each other. And that model of a public market that I described, I think goes a long ways towards that. One of the things we do at Range Foods Direct is there's a guy that makes soap. There's a lady that, 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 that makes soap a, a, a different kind. I mean, they're using beef tallow and mm-hmm. rendered pork fat in their soaps. We, we've, got, we've got a SoCo market that we host on Saturdays out of our food hub in Colorado Springs that sells a hundred and some different vendors' products. And it's right. curbside. You don't have to even get out of your car. I mean, we've got the Hava Farm CSA pickup on Fridays. You just start building that community. Ranch Foods Direct probably sells a hundred products that Calipari Cattle Company doesn't do, have a thing to do with. Amazing. All we have done is provided in the space. To be able Mm -hmm. to do business. Mm
0: -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so you
3: start building these small businesses back again, but we just need a little help from government to enforce those antitrust laws, keep the predators at bay while we build this new infrastructure.
2: I love that. We're going to have to close it there, Mike. But thank you. That, that is a ringing call to action, people. Listen to Uncle Mikey. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Mike, it's always a great pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And we'll stay in touch. I'll keep reading that blog. Where can people read your blog, by the way? Remind people uh, of where they can Mike read. Cal- and-
3: it's at mikecalcrate.com. And it's the lower left button is the blog.
2: All right. Sounds great. All right. Thank you, my friend. We'll speak again soon. You betcha. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website Radio Network.org. connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community